Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. But I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we've been uh, moving along uh, slowly together in this chapter. And uh, let's, uh, let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer as we go to the ministry of His Word again this evening. Father, we do thank You, Lord, so much um, for Your praiseworthy name that You are worthy of worship and that we can have such great joy in our fellowship together that we participated in this morning as we took communion together and as we continued together tonight in the ministry of Your Word and also with one another in prayer. We thank You that we can lift all these requests to You. We thank You for Your truth and as we've been repeatedly seeing over the course of many weeks, the power and sufficiency in your gospel message. And Lord, we pray that our convictions would grow, that we would grow in our steadfastness in the truth. And we ask these things all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I invite you to follow along with me as we read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. And we're going to continue through the end of the chapter reading this together because Paul keeps these as sort of congruent thoughts. Um, Paul argues for uh, two different um, approaches that he makes in the gospel message that we're going to be uh, taking a look at, uh, one this time and, and then another the next time we're together. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. If you thought that was tough to follow in English, you should try doing it in Greek. Paul's structure, grammatical structure there is just a little bit complex, but we'll get to that. Paul continues, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. As as I was reading a number of articles this last week in preparation for this section tonight, uh, we've been coming up to it for quite some time now, and we've been uh, putting forwardly in our thinking the the very common misinterpretation of this passage, and I was reading through a number of different articles and, and the contemporary perspective on evangelistic strategies and what very common blogs and articles and websites, Christian websites, would have to say about evangelistic strategies for churches, for us individually, and developing these strategies and successful practices and all, all of that. And I came across this one article that was written particularly to help pastors in their evangelism programs in their churches and establish those evangelism programs in their churches, make them very successful. And ironically, the most noteworthy characteristic of that particular article was actually how unnoteworthy it was. Um, What was uh, the most striking about that particular article was how common it was. It sort of just collected everything in the same place that we had been reading since the mid-1990s as it relates to a seeker-sensitive philosophy of ministry and a seeker-sensitive approach to sharing the gospel. It was nothing revolutionary. It was just regurgitating the same kind of rhetoric that we've been consistently hearing for quite some time. And, and that is actually why the article proved itself to be helpful, because here it was all in the, in the same place, nothing new. And it said, if you want to have effective evangelism... You have to have an effective evangelism system. You had to have a system before you had a strategy. And so first things first, make sure you start preaching messages that are going to appeal to people's felt needs. I know, that, that's revolutionary, right? How often have we heard that before? Now, you gotta, you got to make sure you preach messages that appeal to people's felt needs if you want to have a, an effective evangelistic system in your church. Because if you're not preaching about their felt needs, I'm summarizing here, you'll never, you're never going to get people to think that they need to go to church. And beyond that, they need to feel like their needs matter and that you genuinely care about them. So not only do you need to create this environment that offers the unregenerate something tangible, something that they believe they need as a consumer. But then you also have to provide the kind of environment that makes them feel like those needs matter, and therefore you are going to make a sincere effort to satisfy those felt needs, whatever they are. And... um, I don't necessarily have a problem with the last statement uh, relating to making them feel like their needs matter and that you genuinely care about them. Uh, We would certainly affirm that. 
that their needs definitely do matter. But I adamantly disagree with the author's construct, which basically says that perception is more important than reality and assumes that if you haven't adopted the man-centered, seeker-sensitive, felt-needs-driven model of ministry, then you don't genuinely care about them. So if you have a, a desire to structure your service in such a way that immediately draws attention away from our felt needs, away from, from ourselves altogether, and instead is focused on God from start to finish, such that an unbeliever would walk into church and think, I don't belong here because these people are worshiping the God that I do not follow, the God that I reject, the God that I don't believe in, the God that I hate, whatever the case may be. And that kind of atmosphere is, well, just doesn't doesn't concern itself with your needs, whether before or after. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. But then the article went on to talk about uh, having wow weekends, and that is just that. A weekend where you have services that create some kind of wow factor, a wow response. So the unregenerate community hears about these events that you're having in your church, and they simply respond saying, Wow. Wow, look at that. Look at that program that the church is doing this Sunday. Uh, The case example that they provided was that um, you have sort of an elephant man in a cage or something to get people to come out and and gawk. Uh, And in the article's exact words, uh, actually the article didn't talk about an elephant man uh, in a cage uh, to get people to come out and gawk. But that was the idea. What, what the article exactly says was that you have to have a special guest who is such a big deal that the people in your city say, wow, that, that's the idea. You know, so that's where we get a lot of the, um, the nominal Christian quarterbacks that come to our services to um, give some kind of motivational speech that the pastor maybe will follow up with uh, elementary, maybe half-hearted gospel presentation, or maybe even less than that. But now that you know where we are, you can fill out this form on the tab and take it with you, and and we'll we'll follow up with you if you want it. And then they call that evangelism. And of course, you have to have felt needs campaigns where you topically go through some of the biggest felt needs of the people in your community. One church did a survey and they discovered that uh, their local community, the community in which their uh, church was in, was primarily comprised of uh, newlyweds, young families, and so on and so forth, and, and therefore they believed that their best approach to satisfy the felt needs of their community and communicate to them that they cared was to distribute diapers to all the household, all the households in their area. You can read it in a book. You can ask me later about the book. But that's what churches do and pass off as evangelism. 
And then you have to have comeback events for people who visited before. And so you have to target these people and give them the reason to come back. So first of all, you got to have wow weekends. Uh, then you have to have these uh, big um, felt need campaigns. And then you have comeback events. Uh, maybe your city's baseball team finally breaks their losing streak. Um, and you have a comeback Sunday or something to that effect. I can play that game, but I don't. I want to make sure that you understand that that I and, uh, of course, our overseers here believe in evangelistic training, in planning, in coordinating, in exercising stewardship in the effectiveness uh, to maximize our evangelistic opportunities. We we affirm that. In fact, if you look at Paul's own ministry and map out his evangelistic efforts and and, uh, as he took the gospel to Gentiles, what you discover is that in these locations that he established churches, there, there is a definite strategy there. They were all major cities and influential cities in the first century of Roman Empire. He, he's exercising a level of, of stewardship. Maybe we would say pragmatism, if by pragmatism we simply mean practical. He's just being practical in his presentation of the gospel or where he presents the gospel. Preaching the gospel in a location that people can hear you is practical. Or, to use another word, it is pragmatic. However, pragmatism has come to be developed as its own philosophical system. But at the same time, we don't, wanna, we don't want it to be as though we are being impractical in our presentation of the gospel. And as a ministry, as we look at the ministries of our church, we definitely don't want to be impractical and we want to be passive because, well, after all, we have the truth and so everybody just needs to come to us because, you know, if God was going to save them, then he would bring bring them to us anyway and we don't need to make any proactive efforts. Uh, By no means. Paul uses practical common sense in his evangelistic opportunities. He goes to major cities in the Roman Empire. Paul, in other words, doesn't have a life-changing event on the road to Damascus and subsequently wander off into some isolated people group to evangelize them. Now, did the isolated people group need to be evangelized? Well, of course. But you can imagine if Paul's approach, having been given the tremendous stewardship a unique time in the history of the church and took that stewardship, the message of the gospel, to an isolated people group. It wasn't that those people groups shouldn't be evangelized, but as a principle of stewardship, Paul wanted to use his resources to spread the gospel to as many people as he possibly could to take the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles. So he went where the people were, And he went where the people would spread that message, which would eventually go to those isolated people groups. As the gospel spread from them. So there are practical things that 
we believe are important considerations in our evangelistic efforts, those things need to be consistent, first of all, with the conviction that it is the gospel rather than our methods that builds Christ's church. It is the gospel rather than our methods that has the power to convert the unbeliever. And we also need to be consistent in our methods with a high view of God, a high view of His Word, and a low view of ourselves. And it's interesting that as Paul talks about his missionary strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he undercuts the entire seeker-sensitive movement because his strategy is characterized by selflessness and self-discipline rather than the promotion of self and man-centered methods. He's not propagating a gospel of self-esteem. He's not compromising a message to suit the palate of the unbeliever. But rather... He's exercising severe self-discipline in verses 24 to 27 and self-restraint in verses 19 to 23. He imposes on himself the mentality of a slave even though he's been freed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really contradictory to the modern seeker-sensitive movement. It makes it clear to both the believer and unbeliever that the gospel in him manifests itself by self-discipline and restriction rather than indulgence. And anyone who would come to the gospel would also be characterized as one who gives up his rights for the gospel. Here it is. This is what being a Christian ought to look like. Now, what do you think would happen to those people who walk into a church where their, their strategy is to meet their felt need uh, to get them in the door? From the time they visit, the church atmosphere uh, communicates an environment that is all about them and satisfying their felt needs. And their response, would, of course, would be, well, well this is great. I mean, I, I just showed up, and the table, this banquet, was set for me, and they didn't even know I was coming. Well, I'll come back next week, but next week you're not a visitor anymore, so guess who the banquet's for? So they're set up in sort of a real way for disappointment, right? So at some point or another, it becomes not about them anymore, and it becomes about the next visitor in line little note alone that they need to die to self and give up their liberties and their rights and beat their bodies into subjection. Well, what happened? Last time, this was all about me. Last time I was here. What is this talk about being a slave? What is this talk about church not being like uh, about me? Of course it's about me. It's been about me ever since I arrived. 
And so that's when they either leave to go to another church and then another and another and another and another so that they keep getting that me-centered visitor experience or they go somewhere that they can feel like a visitor every Sunday. See, in that kind of philosophy of ministry, you can't teach what Paul teaches the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There is no construct for the concept of being a slave to all men. The Corinthians had built up a very similar man-centered structure that we experience today. but They had no justification for that. That wasn't the kind of ministry that they were taught, and it wasn't the kind of ministry that Paul had modeled to them. But imagine, if you will, that Paul would walk into the city of Corinth and using um, whatever gimmick that he could think of, taking a felt need-driven evangelistic approach and had all these people coming in because Paul was tickling uh, their ears. And they just responded, well, this is great. This, uh, look at all this self-help stuff. So these people become the church. And what are they thinking the church is all about? It's about me. And then imagine what would happen at that point that Paul says in verse 19, oh, and by the way, you need now to be a slave of all. Give up your felt needs and so forth. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that they would kind of respond, well, wait a minute, that, that's the whole reason I came here to begin with. Satisfy my needs, because it was about me. But the truth is, from the very beginning of their salvation, Paul always modeled a selfless, sacrificial service to the body of Christ. They knew that. They experienced Paul's sacrificial living. Paul reinforced that already earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he talks about his right use of his Christian liberty, his freedom to restrict it, even a liberty that was so obvious as to expect remuneration for pay just like everything else in the world works. But from the very beginning of their salvation, Paul never used a ministry philosophy that communicated anything but sacrifice, self-sacrifice. That was all they'd witness from Paul. That's all they'd ever see him do. And so when Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so they may win more, they experience that. They shouldn't have known anything but a biblical philosophy of ministry. So Paul exercises liberty to be a slave so that he would win more for the sake of the gospel. This is an imitate me statement here. You saw me do this. Why are you, why are you doing anything else? Getting back to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, I mean, isn't it the power of the gospel alone that saved you? So, so what are these silly little games that you're playing? And the expectation is that this is what all believers would look like. Slave to all. That's it. Slave to all. 
Now we know that's the case because Paul says so in, in chapter 10 where he wraps up this section on Christian liberty, starting in verse 31. Uh, he continues a lot of the, the same arguments here, talking about law, the prophet of, of uh, sacrificing our Christian liberties. And uh, he even gets back to the issue of meat sacrifice to idols in verse 28. But in verse 31, he says, Whether then, in conclusion, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. So this is the expected model for the Christian. In conclusion, Paul says, look, you, you see my life. You've seen my sacrifice. You've seen my attitude towards you. You've seen my attitude toward the unregenerate. You are to live the same way, not living for yourself, but for the glory of God. That's your motivation. That's the model. But we need to say this up front, and we've been prepping you for it, that this passage has nothing to do with adapting and imitating other cultural groups and missions. It isn't that. Not that there is anything wrong with that per se uh, to adopt the societal norms for a given cultural group. Um, those kinds of things are often obvious in the missionary community. I have a friend, actually, who, uh, while I was in seminary, he gave me his hat, he's from Thailand, and he said that in Thailand, young men uh, going into pastoral ministry wear these hats, and it's sort of a funny little hat, and it doesn't stay on your head very well, and that's just one reason why I don't wear it. Um, but uh, he actually didn't wear it while he was in America either because, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but this hat, is, it was a very brightly covered hat, and it was embroidered, all kinds of stitching, and, and it had tassels that were hanging down from it, a bright red hat. And, um, and I keep it in the, the drawer of my desk because of what it symboled in Thailand. And so a good reminder for me every time I open my desk drawer, it, it, was, a, it was a sign of humility. Young men would wear this in Thailand to communicate humility. Maybe it was sort of the silliness of the hat that that was supposed to reinforce the humility. I don't know. But, but he didn't wear the hat, even though this was a sign of humility in Thailand. He never wore the hat in the United States, even though he was active in ministry in the United States. Because it was abnormal to our culture, to our society, it didn't communicate anything here. But alternatively, if I were to go to Thailand as a young man, it would be expected that I would wear the hat. And so you better believe what I would be doing if I was ever given an opportunity to preach in a church in Thailand. I'd wear the hat. There, there are just some things that are common sense. But it, that doesn't come from this passage. And especially doesn't have anything to do with imitating worldliness. We would never get any justification for that from this passage either. Martin Luther even wrote in 1520 in a treatise titled The Freedom of the Christian, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, 
subject to all. These two theses seem to contradict each other. Both are Paul's own statements, who says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. And in Romans 13, verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Love, by its very nature, is ready to serve and be subject to him who is loved. So even Martin Luther understood that love limits liberty, even though he himself practiced that love imperfectly. He was obviously well known as a guy who would hold his table talks with homemade beer in his hand and would occasionally uh, end discussions rather belligerently. Uh, In case you were wondering, his wife made the homemade beer. Evidently, she had mastered the craft, and uh, Martin Luther would even write that he greatly favored his wife's homemade beer on his travels, and she would send a large flask with him. But though he definitely lived somewhat inconsistently, though, in, in that regard at times, he definitely understood that as Christians we are free in Christ, but yet as Christians, love restricts liberty Because though we are slaves of none but Christ, because we are slaves of Christ, we are slaves of all. And there's a very important reason why. If you look at verse 19, Paul says, so that I may win more. So there's his purpose clause. Now verse 22, I become all things to all men so that I may by all means, save some. Paul obviously there isn't contributing the uh, salvation, the effects of salvation to himself or the effectual nature of the gospel to himself. And Paul is also not in any way advocating that the ends justify the means. He's not in any way compromising the integrity of the gospel message. He's definitely not setting aside the truth or changing the truth in order to accommodate unregenerate sensitivities. And there are those who take that perspective. You don't ever want to say anything that might offend someone when you're evangelizing them. Never use words like sovereign or rule or commitment, or slave, or judgment. Definitely never talk about sin. Never, ever talk about hell. And the cardinal rule is that you never, ever, ever talk about eternal hell. You might have even heard from those that Say it's unnecessary to talk about hell or judgment or sin because those aren't fundamental truths of the gospel. All you need is to believe in Jesus. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. So that's all. You just do that. That's all you need. You don't need to know anything about sin or hell to believe in Jesus. And so, 
I'm not sure if that guy's actually ever done any evangelism. They would abdicate that. It's pretty hard to have a conversation about salvation without the person asking, so just what exactly am I being saved from? Tell me why I need to have salvation to begin with anyway. Because my life, quite frankly, I think is fine. I'm happy with the way my life is. Why would I go to God just because you, you say that it would make my life happier or somehow better? I'm content. I don't need it to be. So what do I need to be saved from? Well, listen, remember, Paul already said that he preached the uncompromised, unadulterated gospel to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. So by no means is he saying that, that I'll do anything if it's going to generate some kind of response to the gospel message. That's not what he's communicating. Paul firmly tells us that the nature of the gospel is going to be offensive. And it is not the offensive nature of the gospel that Paul has anything to do with that he changes. And if that's the message that they are offended by, then that's on him. There's nothing that you can do about their heart to change that reality. The truth is, that person is offended by God. And if he has set against God, and that's the nature of the offense, then no amount of winsomeness, no choice of words will matter unless you start preaching a different gospel that offers a salvation from a God other than the God of the Bible. Maybe the God that saves you from all the adversities and trials in this life. Maybe the God that saves you from poverty. The God that gives you wealth a God that gives you health, a God that saves you from suffering, or a God that saves you from hardship or trials or difficulties or getting fired or you name it. That's not the God of the Bible. But if he's offended by doctrine, by accountability, by discipline, by judgment, by holiness, by truth, then it's the, his heart that's the problem. But if you are demanding your rights to be exercised, your Christian liberties, simply because it's your liberty to exercise those rights, then all of a sudden your lack of love rather than the gospel itself becomes a stumbling block. And so such a one would mock Christ because of you, your conduct, your behavior, the, the, the rights that you demand. And that's why Paul is willing to do all things for the sake of the gospel in verse 23, so that he may win some. He's talking about the context of what he will restrict for the sake of the gospel. He wants to improve the effectiveness of his ministry. He wants to see souls saved. It comes from an attitude of Christ-likeness, an attitude of humility. The mindset of a slave that says, I'm not, I'm not deserving of anything. What is it to me then if I am unjustly, unjustly treated as a slave of the king? 
What is it to me if I am treated unfairly, if I can use it as a testimony for the truth? I'll rejoice in the opportunity to be my, like my Lord. You said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that, that's justice. But what about wrong that is inflicted against the believer? And for the sake of the gospel, it is your right, it is your liberty to require justice. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous." For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a high standard of humility. And it is humility that really ought to be the characteristic of our ministry. And that's why, circling back... A few verses to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 and 22, Paul says, To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now, it's pretty straightforward what Paul is saying, and it's a little bit awkward as well because he's saying, To the Jews I became as a Jew. Well, Paul, <laughs> you are a Jew. But obviously what he's emphasizing is what he has been redeemed from being a Jew. And that now he lives under the law of Christ. He's no longer bound to Old Testament ceremonial laws. But if it is by binding himself once again to Old Testament ceremonial laws that he can avoid an unnecessary stumbling block to the Jews, then he'll, he'll restrict his liberties to eat ham. He'll give up that right. He doesn't mind doing that. If by practicing holy days, he can win Jews, I mean, the holy day doesn't mean anything, one way or another. But if he can do that, and the Jews... The Jews respond with a little bit more of a favorable disposition toward him. And it helps his winsomeness in his presentation of the gospel and removes every possible stumbling block that he would impose, uh, then he would be gladly willing to do that. All without compromising the integrity of the gospel message itself. Paul makes sure that we understand that. 
He says, uh, he becomes as a Jew, so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. He recognizes that he's no longer bound to Old Testament ceremonial law, so that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without law, now Paul uses a negative form of law, um, and uh, it would usually be translated illegal. To those who are illegal. So you have those who are legal before God and those who are illegal before God, the Gentiles, we would say. Um, As without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. So Paul isn't saying that he is lawless. Uh, To those who are illegal, as illegal, though not being illegal in the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he is following now the law of Christ, though he is still exercising his right to restrict the liberties that would infringe even on the Gentiles, so that I might win those who are illegal, those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men. And the structure there, again, a little bit complex in Greek because he bounces between those terms that mean legal and illegal. But his point, though, in verses 19 to 24, is that he will exercise self-denial for the sake of the gospel. And what we'll see next time in verses 24 to 27 is that he will also exercise self-discipline for the sake of the gospel. Let's close in prayer. And as we do, we're going to go ahead and take our time together worshiping our Lord in hearts of thanksgiving. And we have been leading you over the last couple of weeks to familiarize uh, you with the different aspects of prayer. And hopefully you've been challenged and have been learning and growing in your own prayer life. Tonight what we're going to do is a very similar format. Uh, We'll pray a little bit more briefly from the context of the pulpit here. But um, rather than praying individually individually for the corporate church, our our church, um, you'll break into just small groups. So just to get, get together with one or two or three other people and, uh, and spend time together in prayer, uh, emphasizing that specific aspect that we prayed in. So once again, I'll be leading us off in prayers of praise and thanksgiving. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for the preciousness of your word, for the eternality of your word. Lord, the word that is powerful to save lives, that makes us lowly, that convicts us of sin, that reveals your truth, that instructs us in your will, that makes known your character, that reveals to us your desires for your people, how we are to live. Our proper conduct, the exercise of our liberties. 
And we see in these things, Lord, truly that Your law is perfect. It is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness and especially concerning how we conduct ourselves in the household of God and how we conduct the ministries of the household of God. Lord, we want to meditate on on your law day and night. You're perfect and complete and without error. We pray all these things in your Son's name and rejoice in these things because you are the truth. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermoncast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.